Was anybody surprised to read which relative of Peter was sick in that first part of our second reading? Did you guys catch it? Peter's mother-in-law. Now, in case you haven't seen what I'm trying to highlight yet, you don't get a mother-in-law until you get a wife. Basic math here. (laughs) Basic relational stuff here. Now, I'm not surprised by that from just reading the scriptures because I let the scriptures speak for themselves. But our Catholic friends have an interesting conundrum here when they read this passage. Because how come the guy who they mistakenly call the first pope, how come he has a wife? That's a great question. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not trying to make this a major thing here, but it's an interesting question to be raised. It's a reminder that when you make the traditions of man of equal authority with the scriptures, you end up with some interesting questions. And you find that sometimes your traditions aren't actually in line with the scriptures. So my encouragement to each of you guys is that's why we have to be familiar with the word of God and let the word of God speak for itself. Its word is higher than ours. It's of more authority than ours. And dare I say more authority than anyone else's on this earth. I don't care what your title is. But moving on, and this might be a hard saying a truth for us to accept, but the fact that he healed her is very interesting. As in the first century, women were regarded as second-class citizens in the first century, much like the leper or the Gentile, the, the centurion servant were. That's why they're all kind of paired together in this same section of Scripture. And because at that time, the testimony of a woman wasn't even valid in court, for instance. And yet, you know, as I'm pointing out how the culture viewed women back then, I'm not saying that's how it should be. I'm saying that's how it was. Because women were never second class to God or in his word. Because, I mean, Jesus honored the woman at the well by asking for a drink. She she was, in fact, the first person he revealed himself to, who he really was, the Messiah, to that whole region. It was a woman he first revealed himself to. It was women who discovered the empty tomb, not those big-name apostles. And even in the Old Testament, God made provisions for women to be landowners in certain circumstances. You can read that in Numbers 27. And I I point all this out. I could keep going. How much time do you guys really want me to take on this point? But I could just keep going through the scriptures. And I say all this because you won't find anything else like this in ancient literature. In the time of the writing of the New Testament or the time of the writing of the Old Testament especially. You know, many of you guys have heard uninformed nonsense that says, oh, the Bible is an anti-women book, when nothing could be further from the truth. Now, sinful men do what sinful men are going to do. And the Bible doesn't shy away from it when that happens, but it doesn't say that's how it's supposed to be. When God gave down his laws, he elevated women. When you see Jesus ministering to people, you see him elevating women and their role. 
in the Old and New Testament. So whatever men says, you know, interesting that it took so many years for us to finally catch up, even in our American culture, with what the Bible said about women all along. That should encourage us. So Jesus heals her much like he did all the other people in this chapter. He he touches her, says a word, and she is healed by that authority that he has over all kinds of ailments. And after he heals her, that very evening, they brought all kinds of other people to be healed, including those the Bible says were demon-possessed. And yes, that's a real thing. And we ought to be aware that that is a thing, that that happens. But there's, there's two extremes to this camp. Now, Satan loves it if we think that he's more powerful than he really is or more present than he really is. We've all met somebody that sees a demon in the coffee pot, who sees a demon underneath the copier or some other piece of office equipment. We've all met somebody like that. And that's one extreme, and that makes Satan and his armies more intimidating than they actually are for those of us who know Christ. But he also loves it when we don't even remember that he or demons exist at all. He gives him more opportunity to do things if you don't think he's even there. And I, which is why I suspect most of you have never actually seen somebody who is demon-possessed here in the West. Now, because if, uh, let, let me illustrate my point. I think if somebody were to walk right in the front door right now, hooting and hollering and speaking in, in an unearthly voice, it would shake us up quite a bit, wouldn't it? And no, I didn't have arranged for somebody to come walking in. You can relax. <laughs> Tempting though it was, I decided not to. <laughs> but seriously, if somebody were to come in there and like that, somebody were to walk right in the front door doing, acting like that, it would shake you all up. And if I were to walk down the front, right down the front aisle and cast it out of him, whew, that would change things. You, we would all cling to our Bibles a little tighter, wouldn't we? We would all pray a little bit more fervently, wouldn't we? We'd all maybe tell somebody about this. We'd be more fervent to tell people about the gospel. That's what we would do. And that's exactly why Satan isn't so obvious in his approach to attacking us here in the West. He loves his secrecy. Because if he does things like that openly, oh, that will wake up the church. He has us asleep. To, to, to these types of things. He has us asleep when there's a spiritual battle for our nation taking place. That's exactly where he wants us, and we ought to be aware of that. And you know, in other cultures, it, it, it happens more frequently because the source of this unearthly power is hidden. I've talked to enough pastors and missionaries from all over the world uh, you know, things like this still happen, but in Haiti, they, call, they, they place the power in voodoo, and they say it's the voodoo stuff. In Africa, it's the witch doctors and that kind of stuff. That's how he hides these demon activities under the guise of something else. So something to be concerned about, something to remember, something to keep in the back of our minds. But we need to remember who the true victor is. And again, not give them more credit than they are due. 
Because, like I said, you see how easy it was for Jesus just to cast these things out, and we'll discuss a little bit more towards the end of this chapter. But we need to remember Jesus has the victory. He is stronger and has authority over all of this. And since somebody I'm sure is wondering, no, this can, what happened to these people, uh, an actual possession cannot happen to a Christian. Somebody who believes the gospel, somebody who loves the Lord, somebody who has the Holy Spirit inside of them already does not need to fear something like this happening to them. The Holy, the Bible tells us that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And we take comfort in that as Christians. So that's basic demonology 101 for you. Real comfortable subject to talk about, I know. But as I said before, if it's in the scriptures, we're going to talk about it. Because we're not afraid or ashamed of God's word. And what's in there and what God thought was important enough to put in his word for all eternity, I want to know. I want to study. I want to hear about. So needless to say, Jesus has authority even over these things even over those of the other side of the spiritual battle. He has authority, and that should give us comfort. Now, in the middle of this theme of authority, it appears that Matthew almost takes a break from all this action to remind us that it's not about, or not just about, Jesus' complete authority, but to get us to ask the question, have I personally submitted to his authority? as we move over into verse 18 of our scriptures this morning. As it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I find it astounding that this scribe gave Jesus the right answer. That, that's what you want to hear him say. You know, oh, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And man, that's what the average preacher wants from every one of his congregants. That's what, that's what the cry, I tell you guys, that's what the heart, of, the cry of our hearts ought to be. Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll do what you say. I'll go wherever you go. But Jesus was hardly the average preacher, wasn't he? He saw something deeper here. Instead of welcoming that statement and pouring praises over him, as many probably would, Jesus questions it. Interesting. Essentially getting him to ask, you know, are you sure you mean what you just said? Saying in verse 20, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now before we go further with this, it's, that's an important word that Jesus just called himself, the Son of Man. It's the first mention of that term in the New Testament. And that is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it some 81 times in the Gospels. So it's pretty significant to understand, well, what does he mean? And I've heard it explained a number of times that, oh, well, that title, Son of Man, is to counterbalance his deity, counterbalance, oh, we have the Son of God and the Son of Man, his deity and his humility. And yeah, there's a hint of that. But it's actually, that understanding misses the point of where that term came from and why it's significant. 
That, ter- that title, Son of Man, actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read to you briefly where that term comes from. Here's what it says. It says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there comes one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the basis for where this title Son of Man comes from. And yeah, there's a hint in there, yes, Son of Man, there's a hint of him identifying with with humanity in there. But the main point of that title is not his humility, but his glory, but his power, but his everlasting dominion. And that was Jesus' favorite title that he frequently used for himself. Fascinating when we let the scriptures speak to themselves. How there's more to it than we would think. But getting back to our main point here, what, what, do you see what Jesus' main objection was to this scribe? The main thing he was trying to get him to think through, to consider. After he said, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I don't. I, the son of man, don't. This is not, if you follow me, this is not going to be a comfortable journey like you might think it is. And you know, too many people start their Christian walk thinking it's going to be an easy journey. And they end up being surprised by how much following Jesus actually costs us. Thinking it's going to be easy, they end up being surprised that Jesus calls us to uh, uh, the, the calling he makes for us. And they abandon the faith. Much like that seed that fell on the rocky soil that uh, Jesus would later teach us about later on in the parables. They endure for a time, but when the difficulties arise, they just fall away. And they don't last because they're not rooted deep enough. And so, too, we forget that we are called to repent of our sins. We are called to live for God. We're called to serve others. We're called to tell other people about the gospel. Tell others about Jesus. But yet some people just come for the culture. Some people just come to have an easier life, to have Jesus fix their problems. Oh, I got to become a Christian. I got to start going back to church because my life is falling apart. And yeah, there's... God will help you put your life back together. That is a byproduct of coming to him. But Jesus isn't, doesn't just make things easier. There's a cost to it. I hope that's making sense. I mean, like, we understand this, though. I mean, we can all think about a time in our life where we committed to something or we signed up for something without really realizing what the cost was. I'm sure we could all go around the room and think about something like that. I mean, I can remember a hilarious time back when I was just a freshman in high school. I, um, my, my older cousin for somehow talked me into joining the cross-country track team. Kids, don't do that. Don't do that to yourselves. Because, <laughs> look, one day, I, I didn't know what I signed up for, but day one I show up. I know it has something to do with being athletic and running around. And so I show up day one to the practice, and uh, the coach says, okay, we're going to take a half-mile warm-up. 
I'm like, oof, all right. Me thinking, okay, we'll do, they're just going hard on us at first, and then the rest of the time will be easy. All right, whatever. So I'm like, me being the young guy, I'm like, all right, I'm going to make an impression. So I, I actually tried really hard during the warm-up. I think I finished second place to finish my half mile. And I'm like, I was tired, but I'm like, yeah, all right. Day one, I'm making an impression. This is good. This is good. And then they go, all right, now we're going to run three miles. What? So fast forward slightly in the story, I am now dead last, impressing exactly zero people, and I am just pulverized. I am destroyed. I quit immediately that day. I made it to the finish line, and that was finished for me. I had no idea what I had signed up for, and I was out. Now, that's a humorous story, but too many people do the same things with God. We do this in the spiritual sense as well. You know, Jesus said in our first reading that nobody starts a construction project without making sure you have the materials and the labor to finish. That no king goes to war without, the, without actually believing they could win. <laughs> and no youth should ever join cross-country without Googling to find out what it means. How much more so our faith? We too need to count the cost. Do we really want to be a Christian if it costs us something? Because guys, we don't hear from this scribe again in scripture. He disappears. He falls away. He does not continue to follow Jesus. Because if he did, I am sure one of the biblical authors would have noticed a scribe, a scholar of the Old Testament law, a leader in Israel following Jesus. That would have been significant. Somebody would have noted it somewhere. We don't see it. This scribe did not last. This was a deal breaker for him. Could it be for you if if following Jesus costs you your comforts? You know, I heard a story the other day of a, of a boy watching, sh- watching soldiers marching in a parade and him turning to his father who was standing next to him and saying, Daddy, I want to be a soldier. That's easy when you see the parade going by. It's easy to want to be someone when you see the praises being heaped on somebody. It's quite another thing once you think through what the sacrifice means for those who do go into the services and lay their lives on the line for the sake of others. It's a much higher cost than marching in a parade. So what about this other disciple that we read about? Verse 21, it says that another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, that seems like a very reasonable request at first. Oh, just let me go have a funeral and then I'll follow you, Jesus. For my father, that sounds significant. And it seems kind of harsh at first when you hear what Jesus says. There's more to this than we think. Because that phrase, let me bury my father, meant something very different to a first century Jew than it was to us. That phrase basically uh, of let me bury my father basically means once my father dies and I get my inheritance from him, then I'll come and follow you. 
is what he's really saying. His father's very much still alive in this parable. In parable, who am I kidding? In this historical narrative, his father's still very much alive. And he's saying, you know, wait, wait until I get my inheritance. Once I get some more security, once I get fi- my finances in order, once I can live again comfortably in this way, once I'm fully supplied, then I'll follow God. Then I will follow you, Jesus. So make no mistake, Jesus is not saying you need to skip out on, an, on a loved one's funeral to follow him. No, he is correcting this disciple's false view of discipleship. You do not have to wait until you are financially secure to commit yourself to Christ. Following Jesus is a first priority. You do that first, and then you do other things. And guys, our culture is full of excuses just like this one. That sound just like this one. Oh, I'll follow Jesus when I get married and I have kids. Oh, that's when I'll come back to church. Oh, I'll follow Jesus after college. You know, so I get to have my fun there without excuse. Oh, I'll follow Jesus if I need him. I'll follow Jesus if I need him as a crutch. I'll follow Jesus if I'm like you and I need him, but I'm fine. But when you understand our problem of sin, when you understand how broken we truly are, oh, we need Jesus now. Now. We just don't realize it. Acts 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Which is why Jesus tells this man, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In context, we get a kind of an idea of what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, basically, let the world and those in the world worry about the things of the world. You follow me today. And you can worry about all that other stuff later. You know, you remember not that long ago when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus said that, He recognized we have need of all of these things. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Saying, yes, Lord, God understands we need these things. We need stability. We need basic comforts of life. We're not going to go long without food, water, water, clothing, and stability in our lives. He knows that. But when you put him first... All those other things have a way of working themselves out. Put the first thing first. You don't start at the last thing and you chase the first. You start with the important thing and work your way back. Now, I heard a hilarious example of a a college professor who came into his um, class with a big fishbowl. And he started off by saying, okay, kids, so how much do you think I could fit into this into this bowl. And everyone kind of looks at okay, well, there's, it's empty, so I don't know, probably a whole lot. And he starts taking these huge rocks, placing them into the container until all of those big rocks, you couldn't fit a single more in there. It's starting to pile above. And he, said, and, and he says, okay, can I fit any more? 
And he says, well, no, no, you can't. And he says, okay, well, and then he reaches underneath his desk, pulls out a box of small rocks and starts pouring that into there as well, finding plenty more space. And, and he says, okay, can I fit any more? And the kids say, no, you can't fit any more of that. Reaches back under there and finds a whole, uh, another container of sand. Starts pouring it in there, filling it again up to the top. And they're like, oh, and then he asks again, is there anything else I can put in here? And I said, no, you can't do any better than sand. Reaches down one more time. Water. Pours that in there. He then looks to the students one last time and says, so what did we learn? And they say, uh, so apparently there's, much, there's always more that you could fit in there. There's always more you could fit into the box. And his answer was simple. No, the, the lesson is start with the big rocks. Start with the big rocks. Because if you start with the water and the sand, you're not going to have room for those big rocks that he started with. The lesson is simple. Start with the important things. Put the big rocks first. You get the analogy, guys? We start by putting Jesus first. And the other things will come in due time. So we worry about security, stability, comfort. Leave all of that. Those are the secondary things. Those are the things that come later. Start with the big rock. Start with the cornerstone of our faith. Start with Jesus and work our way from there. So the question simply emerges, have you counted the cost? It might cost you your comfort, like it did the scribe to follow Jesus. Money and security, like the other disciple. It might cost you socially to follow Jesus. uh, uh, With some of your friends, they might call you weird for being one of those Jesus freaks. Might be speaking from experience. You might be called to surrender a certain lifestyle that you live. That is not congruent with being a Christ follower. And I'm not just talking about some of the first things that come to mind. There are plenty of things that we do in our culture that is not congruent with Scripture. It will absolutely cost you your friendship with the world to be a Christian. And it might even cost you your life, like it is for so many people around the world right now, in China, in North Korea, in Iran, and to missionaries still going into Ukraine in the midst of what's going on out there right now. If those are the types of costs, do we still say yes to Jesus? Do we still say, I will follow you wherever you go? The scribe's question was not invalid. His answer just wasn't thought through. Because let me tell you guys, for all this discouraging stuff that I'm saying right now, and yes, I am wrapping up, once you objectively count the cost of following Jesus, it's actually an easy decision. Because there is nothing in the whole world that is not worth laying down for the sake of gaining Christ Jesus as your Lord. Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells us that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And houses, brothers and sisters, mothers, children's lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal 
life. When you weigh it out, it is clearly we have far more to gain as Christ followers than we could possibly lose in either side of eternity by not. Once we understand who Jesus is, what he has done for you, what you get now as a Christian, and especially what we get later, it's an easy choice to follow him. There is no cost too high. But there is a cost. We've just been fortunate that many of us have not been tried yet. We live very comfortably here in the West. It doesn't, becoming a Christian doesn't mean possibly losing our life. With the government coming after us, trying to kill us like it does in other countries, as I named earlier. You might still be able to live comfortably as a Christian, but we, don't, we aren't promised that. You might be living comfortably with sin in your life as of now. You might, be a fi- you might only have a fair weather commitment to Jesus just so long as things are good. But I implore you guys, count the cost. If it starts to cost you something as a Christian, will you still follow him? And consider the words of Paul who said in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in conclusion, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm not sure if I've shared that yet. And in the final installment, there's this heartwarming moment where several of the main characters are forced to create this diversion so that Frodo and his buddy can, can destroy the ring and bring peace to the realm. But, though, but they're not going to be able to do it unless they create this diversion that the people who are considering doing it realize this might cost us our lives. And after the reality of that sets in for these characters, one of them steps up and says, certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? He didn't marginalize what this commitment meant. He didn't say, oh, you know what? There's a chance things could work out. Oh, it's, it didn't diminish or marginalize the cost that it would be. He looked at it right in the face for what it was and said, sign me up. This is the right thing to do. I'm in. I'm all in. That is so to our call as Christians. Knowing what lies ahead is worth everything that it could cost us. May that be said of each one of us today. Thanks be to God. Amen.